Well, great singing, great worship, and uh, we are beginning a new series this Christmas season starting today uh, called the, uh, the Power of Christmas. You'll hear more about that in just a minute as we, after we pray, but it's going to be a series that will be a run-up to uh, Christmas Day that I think will very much encourage you, especially with all that's going on in the world around us. So more on that in just a minute. Each week we're going to be taking a look at uh, a very popular, well-known Christmas story. And each week I'm going to be reading the story to you even before we pray. Now, I know some of you just sat down, and I'm going to ask you to do something as we go into the gospel reading. Ed, what is it? I'm going to ask you to stand. But if this is the worst thing that happens to some of you today, you're really blessed. So just stand one last time. And uh, then you get to sit down for like 40 minutes. So uh, other campuses, stand with me. Uh, let's read this, and then we'll pray and dive in. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Why don't you have a seat and bow your head and let's commit this time to God. God, the, uh, the downside of a story like this that we just read is that some of us are so familiar with it that it's become placid and even routine at a time like this, this time of year. God, I pray, and it's my only prayer today, that you would add freshness to this story that so many of us are familiar with, and may we see it not only in a new light, but in the light that it was originally intended to give us, this idea of power in the incarnation. That's my prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. So here's the origin of this entire month for me and the series that we're gonna do. I was watching TV just the other day and it hit me as I was watching Christmas commercial after Christmas commercial during my favorite primetime TV shows that if somebody was visiting America, say from a country or a land that had no Christian roots at all, if somebody had no idea what Christianity was and was visiting our country and they had to discern what Christmas is about simply from watching TV or reading a newspaper or listening to the radio with very, very rare instances, they would have no idea what Christmas is really about. That's where our culture is today. There are some rare instances where that's not true. I was listening to 5.50 a.m., James T. Harris the other day on Friday, and man, he was like a preacher going after the gospel, and I was so proud. But that's rare 
the point is, is that if anybody was unfamiliar with what the Bible says about Christmas, if all they did was listen to the culture around us, again, media, television, newspaper, all that, here's the message they would get as to why we celebrate, celebrate Christmas. They would get the message that Christmas is a time for family and friends and gatherings and gift giving and kindness and generosity, and then oddly bringing pine trees inside and decorating them. Don't miss this. Just from what we garner from culture and the media around us, the clear message about Christmas is the power of horizontal relationships. Not bad. It's the power of family, the power of friends, the power of being nice. The hope that that conjures up. That's about as far as our culture today goes in telling us what Christmas is all about. And certainly, these are not bad things in and of themselves. Who would argue with family and friends and gift-giving and kindness and trees? Just what hit me lately is how far our culture has strayed from what Christmas is truly about. I know that's not news to you, but it just kind of hit me fresh this season that if you and I were living 50 years ago, we'd not be having this discussion. Because 50 years ago, uh, this Judeo-Christian heritage that we have that was still imbued pretty much in American culture, it's just that that's water under the bridge. It's kind of gone. And it kind of made me sad as I realized that once again this Christmas season. But then as I was ruminating about all of that, because I don't like to be too negative, what also hit me in a very visionary and positive way is how thankful that I am for the church, for you and for me. Because here's what you need to know. God is not up in heaven right now biting his fingernails worrying about where our culture is. No, he's up in heaven right now looking down upon his church, the body of Jesus Christ, the carriers of the gospel message, and he's saying, go, gang. He's saying, you understand where the true power of Christmas is. You understand what this season is about, and I've commissioned you to help our culture understand it as well. Not to put too much pressure on you, but God says, I'm hinging it all upon my church to be carriers of who my son really is. And so what I've decided to do this Christmas season here at SBC as we do our annual four-week run-up to Christmas is to talk about the power of Christmas, understanding that our culture has reduced Christmas to all these good and fine horizontal things. Watch this. I want you and I to get vertical. I want you and I to explore what Christmas was originally designed to be in light of who God is, who Jesus is, and where the real power is in all of this. And so we're going to take a look at the stories that you're all familiar with. The story today of Joseph, next week of Mary, the week after that is of the shepherds. But we're going to look at it through the lens of this vertical relationship with God, what God was doing 2,000 years ago, and how that affects us today. And we're not going to talk a lot about horizontal relationships, though we know that Christmas is a good time for family, and it's a good time for friends, and I hope you bought a lot of gifts, and maybe you got a tree, most likely artificial, so you know, it's okay. All those are good and fine things. We're not going to spend a lot of time at SBC on that this month. I want to talk about you and God. I want to talk about our culture and how we might be able to help them understand the vertical nature of Christmas, the power behind Christmas. 
And we begin today with the heart of it all, what I've called the power of the incarnation. Now, we read the story a few minutes ago. I'm, I'm sure you caught the gist of it as the angel appears to Joseph in a dream. If you didn't, here's the backstory. It's really simple. Mary and Joseph are engaged to be married, and uh, everything's going fine until Mary gets pregnant. But you see, these two people are godly. They're biblical. They haven't had sex yet before marriage. And so Joseph just assumes that Mary has had an uh, affair on him. And so he decides, being a godly man, to kind of put her away quietly, to sort of cut the relationship off quietly. But an angel appears to Joseph in a dream to help him understand what's really going on. And the first thing that we need to note about what the angel says to Joseph about this Jesus that's in Mary's womb is something that's really easy to miss. It's the very opening words of the angel to Joseph that most people do a drive-by with, but they're really important words because Matthew would use the identical words as he opened up the gospel 19 verses earlier. Let me show you what I mean. Here's what it says. Matthew opens up his gospel in chapter one, verse one, saying the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then as it starts to tell the Christmas story, after all this genealogy stuff in the first 19 verses, it says in verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, Joseph, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. So, so you need to see this. We're only going to spend about a minute on this, but twice it uses this phrase, son of David, to refer to Jesus at the beginning of this gospel and then to refer to Joseph. What does that mean? What it's simply referring to is the fact that these two guys are human beings that have a human lineage. That's all you need to see here. That Joseph has a royal human lineage, just like some of you have done your ancestry look and all of that. Joseph knows his. He goes all the way back to the mighty King David, and that's his lineage. He's a human being. But notice that they're making a tie to Jesus here and saying Jesus also is a full human being with a lineage as well. And though it gets kind of complicated because he has a lineage through Mary, but not a biological lineage through David, that's, or I'm sorry, through Joseph, that's not Matthew's point. Matthew is saying that Joseph is his legal father and that just as Joseph is a human being, so this Jesus is a human being, a son of David. So, Notch that away. That's what he's saying there. And, and notice a further thing that then goes on in this interplay between Joseph and the angel that tells us something additional about who Jesus is. Look at verses 22 and 23. Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, Behold, the virgin Mary shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is extremely significant, folks, because bouncing off a then 700-year-old passage found tucked away in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it was prophesied by Isaiah that someday a Messiah, a deliverer, would come what the biblical writer here, Matthew, is pointing out is that that deliverer is present in Jesus. So that's the first thing Matthew is saying here, that the Messiah is now here and it's in Mary's womb and it's Jesus. But there are two critical things. 
that Matthew then makes clear in pointing to this prophecy that we don't want to miss. First, he says that Jesus will be born of a virgin. We're going to look at that more next week. A miraculous birth showing that this is divinely orchestrated, and it obviously came true in Mary. And then just so that he's really clear about who this Jesus is, he says that this baby is literally God with us. God with us. I put it there in yellow. <laughs> the quote actually ends right here, the Isaiah 7:14 quote, where it says that this deliverer, this Messiah is going to have a nickname and his name will be Emmanuel. The reason I say nickname is because in the Hebrew, this is actually a made-up word, Emmanuel. They took two Hebrew words back then that were common, Emmanuel, which means with us, and El, which means God, and they fused them together and said that this baby that would someday come would be God with us, God in the flesh. And Matthew is so rabid about this, he, he adds this editorial comment here in parentheses, and he says, if you didn't get it, Emmanuel means God with us. So add it all up. You got a 700-year-old prophecy of a miraculous birth signifying God's literal presence on earth. It's clearly pointing to Jesus's divine nature. The other biblical writers would not be lost on this. John says it poetically this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he skipped down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Clearly telling us about Jesus' divine nature. So now, going back to Matthew, let's put this all together. You have Jesus referred to as a son of David, having a human mother, a legal father, complete with a lineage and a human past, fully human, and then, in the same vision from the angel, you have a virgin birth orchestrated by God's Holy Spirit, Emmanuel, God with us, all the fullness of God packed in this human being named Jesus. And here's the point, and there's no other way around it. It's the power of Christmas, if there ever is one, and it's this, that Jesus is fully God and fully human in one person. Man, don't miss this because a lot of Christians are confused on this. When Barna does his polls and he asks Christians on the precise identity of Jesus and then says, I'm trying to help us along, do you think he's God? Like half of evangelical Christians give that deer in the headlights look. And the reality is, is that Matthew comes along and says, let me tell you the first story about Christmas. He's fully God. And he's fully human in one person. Listen, folks, not 50% God and 50% human like a combination deal. Not 100% God, but just looking like a human, like an appearance deal. And certainly not 100% man with a few divine qualities, but fully God and fully human come to us in Jesus Christ. This is who he is. And theologians would go on to call this the incarnation, a fancy theological word that if you look it up on Webster's Dictionary, as I did this week, it gives a theological definition. It says an incarnation is God becoming flesh. 
God who is wholly other than us, existing outside of space and time, because he created space and time, decides to invade space and time as a human being. It's something that has never happened before. It's never happened since. God becoming a man, that's Jesus. And so I love how the scholar Raymond Brown, in his highly respected commentary on the infancy narratives, he's respected across all theological lines. I like how he says it. He says this. He says, if Jesus is not true God of true God, then we don't know God in human terms. Even if Jesus is the most perfect creature far above all others, that's what a lot of people try to say. He's just sort of a perfect human being. He says he can tell us only at second hand about a God who really remains almost as distant as the unmoved mover of Aristotle. He says only if Jesus is of God do we know that God's love was so real that he gave himself for us. Only if Jesus is of God do we know that it is of his nature to redeem the creation that he brought into being. Only if Jesus is of God do we know what God is like. And I like how he ends it here. He says, for in Jesus, we see God translated into terms that we can understand. (laughs) What terms? Human terms. Flesh and blood. Having feelings. Being just like you with one big difference. He didn't sin. He doesn't fall. He didn't fall into the things that we do. Why? Because he's God. I've told you this before. I was watching Jay Leno years ago when Jay Leno was on the Tonight Show and he was doing his opening monologue. And I don't even know why he did this. He he was bumping up against such a wonderful theological truth right there on primetime television. He he said in his opening monologue, can you imagine being one of Jesus's brothers or sisters and having your mother look at you and say, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? (laughs) (laughs) And then Leno said, I could you not on the tonight show. He said, because he's God, mom. That's why I can't see. Jay Leno understood the incarnation. Why do you and I seem to have a problem with this? Brown is right. It all hinges on an incarnation, God becoming human. Any other explanation, I'm telling you, it all falls apart. Any other reality, and there is no power in Christmas. Now, once you and I get this, the obvious question becomes why? I mean, good theology lesson, Jamie, pretty cogent, but why does it all hinge on this incarnation? Why is it so important that Jesus be fully human and fully God? And with clarity that leaves no room for ambiguity, the angel in our story answers this question for us. One last look at the story. Look at verse 21 and what the angel says. He says, she, meaning Mary, will bear a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. Here it is. Because he's going to save his people from their sins. Well, talk about a spoiler alert. Talk about telling you the end at the beginning. This is what the gospel writer and the angel are doing here. It's saying that the reason that God became a man The reason that Jesus' incarnation is so important is because of three words you never want to forget. And those words are save, people, and sins. Man, if you don't remember anything out of the day, remember those three words and you got it. Save, people, and sins. Let's start with the middle one, people. I would simply submit to you that when it says that Jesus came to save his people from their sins, it's referring to any and all that would come to him. 
Some commentators try to argue that it is referring only to Jews because the Jews would have been his people. But if you read the rest of the New Testament, you read that it includes anybody that would come to faith in Jesus. That's the scandal of Gentile inclusion. And so when Matthew says here, and Matthew was a Jew, that he's coming to save his people, he's referring to those that are truly Jesus's, those who come home to him. Any and all, as Peter would say, that want to come to repentance. But then secondly, we get to that little but power-packed word, sin. And what's interesting here, don't miss this, because I smile at this, because it's so stinking counter-cultural. It's interesting here that Matthew assumes that all people have sinned and are in deep trouble with God. And he doesn't even argue the point. He's basically saying people equal sin. If you got a human being in this world, You don't even have to bank on it. That human being has sinned in some way, as beautiful and wonderful as they might be. And as a result of that, they need some saving because they're separated from God. Or simply put, here's my point, gang. We don't like to talk about sin, but if somebody doesn't understand they're a sinner in need of grace, they will never understand the gospel, amen? Until you understand how far away you are from God, what is there to rescue? That's the point. A few years ago, when I was doing a deep dive into this Christmas story, I ran across a quote from a a, a guy in Canada named Charles Price. He was then the pastor of the People's Church in Toronto, Canada. As far as I can tell, a pretty good guy. And I loved his quote on sin. I'd never thought about it this way, and and it kind of rocked my world. This is what he says about sin. He said, sin is not a measure of how bad we are. It's a measure of how good we're not. (laughs) You like that? Sin is not a measure of how bad we are. It's a measure of how good we're not. What's he getting at here? What he's essentially saying here is that most of us measure our sinfulness by comparing ourselves to others and how bad we might or might not be compared to them, right? And that's the American way. It goes like this. Well, I don't cheat on my wife like my neighbor does, and I don't steal from the office like the guy in the cubicle next to me, and I don't swear as bad as my high school friends, and I don't skip church like my wife's brother's family. I mean, this is how we think. And before you know it, we're measuring our sinfulness by how bad we are or aren't compared to our neighbor. I see Christians do it all the time. And yet Price is right, that's not the definition or measurement of sin. No, the Bible says you're to measure your sinfulness, now watch this, by how good you're not compared to God's standard. That's how we're to measure our sinfulness. One of the reasons I did the Ten Commandments series this past fall was because the Ten Commandments really are a wonderful measure of how good we're not. You can use the commandments the other way. You can compare yourself to your neighbor and how bad you are or aren't and say, well, my neighbor keeps half of them. I keep about six out of 10, so I guess I'm doing okay. But as we learn, that's not the way to view the 10 commandments. No, you're to view the 10 commandments as given by God in a context of holiness on Mount Sinai. And this God who loves you but is completely holy says, I want you to keep all of these perfectly without fail. And as soon as he says that, you start to squirm. Because you sit there and go, well, I'm not perfect, God. And then he says, I know. And that's why you need me. That's why you need saving. That's why you need my grace. 
Uh, going back to our, our story here, the angel knows this. And maybe now you can see that's why the angel equates all people and sin without apology, even without explanation. <laughs> I, I love the quote of my favorite pastor who's now in heaven, Tom Schrader, who, who once said, because he came to Christ at the age of 33, and he said when he was 33 years old and somebody shared the gospel with him he, and told him he was a sinner, he said, I had 33 years of empirical evidence to back that one up. And the reason I found that funny, too, is because I thought I could tell the same story. I don't know about you. Some of you are awfully prideful, but I didn't need any convincing I was a sinner. I knew it then. I knew it now. What I needed convincing of is that there's power in Jesus to save me. And that's exactly what the angel goes on to say, that he will save his people from their sins. What does it mean that he will save us? When you read the rest of the Bible and the whole gospel message, what you realize is that that word save, it's the Greek word sozo, literally means in this context to deliver from and to deliver from by first forgiving you. And then once you've received forgiveness, chipping away at your character for the rest of your life to make you a better man or woman. That's what it means to be saved. It means to be saved from hell by the forgiveness that you need through what Jesus did for you on the cross. But then saved is also used in the context of the New Testament to be saved from this awful life where you've been an enemy of God, where you've been in rebellion to God, and now to get on a road where you can start to become more the man or more the woman that God wants you to be. So it's a, a salvation here that has a couple of components, and they're both critical. Why? Because Jesus is central to both. Why is the incarnation important? Why did Jesus come to earth? Here it is right now. Jesus came to this earth to rescue you, to save you from your sin, and to bring you to God. It's the entire message of the gospel personalize it today. He came for you because you're a person that equals sin, your loss, whether you know it or not, most of us feel it. And he came to save you. And only Jesus can do that because he's the only one, whoever was God, come to earth. It's the power of the incarnation. When I uh, prepare my messages, I'm always cognizant of how much Bible wrote, wrote Bible teaching I'm giving you and then the need for a story after a bunch of that. And I can tell by the glazed look on some of your faces that you're ready for a story. So hopefully you've gotten the theology up to this point. Let's, let's tell a really, really good story. And I love this story. I discovered it about a decade and a half ago. It concerns a man by the name of, of, of Bao Shishun. Bao Shishun. He's one of the tallest men on planet earth. Here's a picture of him. He's still alive today. Yep, that's his wife, and his wife's about as tall as me, just a few inches shorter than me, and uh, he stands just shy of eight feet tall. Uh, for years, he held the Guinness World Book of Records as the tallest man on planet Earth. He stands at seven foot nine inches tall, which is just about two and a half feet taller than me. And he's not a basketball player or anything like that. He's a quiet, humble, 70-year-old herdsman from Inner Mongolia, 
And again, up until 2009, he held a record for being the tallest man living on planet Earth. He's now been eclipsed by, I guess, one other guy a little bit taller than him. But about 15 years ago, he made the international headlines when a very fascinating thing thrust him into the limelight. It happened in China. Two dolphins at the GD Ocean Aquarium in China got deathly sick when they ate some of the plastic from around the aquarium pool that they were in. And they likened it to a five-year-old swallowing a bottle of aspirin. The stomach couldn't digest that. It was going to kill them unless something was done. And so given all of our modern marvels, they decided that the best course of action was to remove the plastic pieces using surgical instruments down the throat. The only problem is, is as they tried this, they underestimated the shape of the dolphin's stomachs and the contraction and all the things that went on there, and they were unable to get to the plastic. So then they decided to do something gross. True story. They decided to have one of the technicians there reach down the dolphin's throat, I know gross, and try to navigate using a human arm the throat and pull the plastic pieces out. The only problem there was they were able to get the arm down, but the arm wasn't long enough. Now you see where this is going. (laughs) So they went, true story, to Inner Mongolia, and they flew Bao in. Did I mention Bao has arms that are 41.7 inches long? Three and a half feet, and here's a gross picture of him doing the deed. And they took these dolphins, they, they, they put their mouths open, and he reached all the way in through all the traverses and contractions into the belly of these dolphins, and he pulled all the plastic out. He saved their very lives, and it made international headlines. And and I'm like you, as I was reading this years ago, I thought, given all the technology that we have today, MRIs, CAT scans, surgery, this isn't 1850, this is only 15 years ago. I'm thinking, given all of that, the guy that saves the day is a humble shepherd with unusually long arms. And that's the point. In a very similar way, here's all you need to know about Christmas. And this brings me to tears. God in Jesus has unusually long arms. And that's what the incarnation is all about. It's God reaching way down into the belly of this world, this beautiful, life-giving, yet sick and sin-filled world. And only God with long arms could reach us. And he did. He rolled up his sleeves. He came in the man Jesus. He stooped down. Philippians would call it emptying himself. Imagine that, the God of the universe becoming a human being and he lived among us a perfect and sinless life and then he saved us as only he could through his sacrificial death on a cross for our sins. Man, be clear on this church. Jesus came so that our sin problem would be dealt with. (laughs) I say it often, but maybe now you understand it. And again, take this in the right light. He didn't promise you a saved marriage, though maybe he'll save your marriage. He didn't promise you completely good kids, though maybe he'll do some work in your kids. He didn't promise you a blessed life financially. 
He didn't promise you a job that you'll enjoy, though maybe you'll get all that too. He didn't even promise you good health to keep you out of the Mayo Clinic, though that might be your road as well. I'm not trying to pop your bubble. It's just that we have made Christianity so shallow in our nation today. We actually attach all those things to the gospel and say, if you accept Jesus, you'll be happy, healthy, wise, financially successful. Your kids will turn out well. The problem is that doesn't work. There are too many good-hearted people that love Jesus and are following him like Paul the apostle for crying out loud, and they're living difficult lives. But there's one difference. They're happy. They got a smile on their face. They're singing hymns in prison like Paul the apostle. Why? Because he saved our pathetic souls, amen? He brought forgiveness into our life, and that's what we need. And again, he might save your kids and do all this other stuff. I know we care about all that. I care too. And I pray about that all the time. But the promise is that he came to save his people from their sins. The promise is that you can wake up every day with a clean slate, knowing that he says, go, Christian. I love you. I'm with you. I've forgiven everything that you thought of over the night. I've forgiven everything you're gonna do from this point on in your life. You're clean. Though your sins are as red as scarlet, they're as white as snow. Now walk with me. It will make you a better man and better woman in the process. He's got unusually long arms. And here's the point. They're long enough to reach you. If you're not a believer here today or Cactus Northridge Chapel, those of you online, many of us tend to feel, well, God, God can't reach me. You don't know what I've done. <laughs> no, I don't, but he does. <laughs> and here's the cool thing about the history of the Christian church, history of Jesus, is that he's been reaching people a lot worse than you for thousands of years. I'm not saying you haven't done things that are really bad, but believe me, there are people who've done really, really, really bad things. And he has unusually long arms. And if you'll look to him and humble yourself and truly turn toward him. The Bible calls that repentance. Just turn toward him. He can forgive you, and he will. And it doesn't stop there, because then even once you're saved, once you're a Christian, you and I both know this, you still have rough days, like really rough days, maybe even rough seasons of divine distance. I had a so-so week this week. Nothing to worry about. I, I said in my there's a video I said that pastors are like accountants between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, and this is our tax season. It's just incredibly busy. Satan's on the prowl, but we have more going on here at our church than any other time of the year, and it can get overwhelming, and yet we still got our own issues we're dealing with. So I like how Paul the Apostle said it in 2 Corinthians. He goes, I got conflicts on the outside, fears within, and on top of that, my concern for all the churches. That just about sums it up for a pastor's life at this time of year. And so I had a fair week, but every day I woke up and I spent some time with Jesus. It's called a quiet time, we should do that. And I was reminded this week that there is nothing, nothing that can or will happen to me in which he doesn't have unusually long arms, in which he can't save me from the things going on around me and save me even from myself. He can do that for me. He can do that for you. It's the power of the incarnation. He came for you. Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Most importantly, do you trust him?
We're going to go to the communion table now. Give you some time to think about that. Where are you at with Jesus? Maybe it's time that you place your faith squarely in him for the first time or even once again. A great time to do it at this table. Let's bow and pray. Father God, there could not be a more timely day for us to celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper, this original Passover meal that you had in preparing for the cross. Lord, as we move into these elements, the, the, the juice or wine and then the bread, we know from Jesus that they symbolize very powerfully his blood and his body, which were given for us. And they were given for one reason and one reason only, to forgive us of our sin. But we have to believe. We have to look to you. We have to trust you. And so, Lord, we do that now. Maybe some of us for the very first time, maybe others of us because we strayed even this week. God, we look to you now and we say thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the incarnation. Thank you that you came to this place to save me. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.